Hello and welcome to Love the Words, a brand new season of Love the Words. Today, an interview with Seacroft poet James Lewis Moran and an audio essay by writer Eleanor Snare. Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM and today we are talking to the poet James Lewis Moran. It's great to have you here James. Yeah, it's uh, it's been way too long. <sighs> How long has it been a year a decade time just disappeared. Well, you're somebody I very much associate with this building and uh, its history or at least our history here. So you can talk a bit about that. But it's great to have you here. We, you've got a new poetry collection out. You're going to be talking about that. And, I, and it'd be great to talk about, yeah, your, the, what's brought you to this point in your writing and also what you're planning uh, in the future. So first of all, yes, tell us about this new collection you've got. What's it called? It's Poverty and Politics. Yeah, um, so what happened is, um, obviously, I'm I'm a writer, I'm a poet, uh, but at the same time, I was heavily involved in activism, politics, I ran for government, as you do, and um, even you know, the Poverty Truth Commission, and I wanted to, to do something with those experiences, I wanted to somehow translate, if I could, into... Um, into a collection of poetry. Um, yeah, you. I mean, just to go back to your your political involvement, you stood for the Green Party a little while ago in Seacroft. Yeah, I uh, I stood for the local elections twice, and I even stood as an MP. <laughs> well, I tried to get elected in, in my naive experiences. You know how it is. You figure I can do this better than them. These people making bad decisions. No common sense. None of them. <laughs> How was that for you, this that um, experience? It, it was very humbling. Um, I, I, I learned a lot from other candidates, um, surprisingly a UKIP candidate, who says, you know, sometimes you need more life experience to properly understand politics. And I didn't really understand that until five years later. Um, and that was one of the things that happened. I got burnt out from it because politics takes a lot of energy sometimes to keep up the good fight. I have huge ad admiration for people who go into politics who put themselves forward. A friend of mine's just, uh, in fact, got in as a Labour councillor in uh, over in uh, the other part of Leeds, Central West Leeds, North Leeds, and uh, you know I have great, great respect for the fact that she's put herself out there and and to all all sorts of stuff as we know goes on in politics. You yeah. have to have a hard, tough it's, skin. It's not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> Absolutely. But to get back to your poetry, but would you like to read us uh, a first poem, please, from the book? Yeah, sure. Um, so this one was um, called Benefits Equals Punishment, because that's what happens sometimes. Um, benefits curse, poverty brutal. You consumed, patience creeps, poverty screams. If benefits are designed to punish... Take them back, this hidden curse that throws you into such destitution and says you belong there. Poverty isn't poetic, it's 
unforgiving and brutal. It kicks you at your worst with its unceasing attack. Poverty is like a monster. If you do not fight it, you will be eaten, consumed. It has no patience for words. It doesn't wait until things are improved. It creeps up slowly like a benefit payment, encouraged sometimes to exist by governments. Poverty is a silent killer of children, the homeless and working families. Yet every now and then it screams from the towers in flames. Lovely stuff, James. And it's uh, obviously it deals with the world we're in, but it's it's also definitely a poem. And uh, I've always liked the way that you read and that you sing too. Have you written any music recently? I have. I heavily got into ska music. It's the genre that I should have discovered sooner. Um, I can't really write positive, cheerful songs, but when I found ska, I could. <laughs> and uh, I've got another, uh, it's called Cycling Mafia on Facebook. I still need to record the music, but oh boy, do I have it. And you must talk to Henry, our broadcasting worker, about Scar. He's a massive fan. So on the way out, you've, you've, you've got to have a conversation. And I suspect it might go on all afternoon. <laughs> let's, let's get, do you want to talk about the cover of, of the book, which is called Poverty and Politics? Let, let, just, could you describe what the cover looks like for the listener? Okay, so on the cover, on the right-hand side, you have a, a well-dressed gentleman with, with the bowler hat, the, the red budget box for the government, waistcoat tie the usual posh person on the street so to speak and then on the left hand side uh, kind of faded character is this um this homeless character with with a dog and a sign and you know disheveled as as things often are and um it says please spare a little change you know change we want change not money mm, and sometimes nice. and um when i first got this illustration made i didn't realize at the time that it's kind of me um you know looking back at my experiences of poverty and, and learning to give yourself permission to move away from that to become um, a better person to kind of um it's okay to be well dressed even if you did come from poverty mm. that kind of stuff mm. um mm. so it kind of resonates more than it ever did with me yes uh, the uh the kind of wordplay on change, have you got some change, some spare change, and change as in the thing that we really want, is, uh, is, is nice and, 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 and precise too. Systemic change. Systemic change, absolutely. Yeah, I've just been reading a book by a guy called Andreas Malm, who's a Swedish uh, writer about climate change. I must, we must talk about that later as well. But yeah, he advocates only systemic change really there is nothing else we'll do how we do it is another thing james i'd like to track back a bit to to your past and your your growing up in 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 seacroft mm -hmm. and um yeah i mean what you, you on on your book you say you're proudly at the back of the book you say you're proudly from Seacroft. Mm. Tell us a bit about Seacroft. Some people uh, listening to this, maybe from other parts of the country or other parts of the world, could you talk a bit about Seacroft? So, yeah, it's um, at one point it was one of the largest council estates in, um, in Europe, I believe. And um, basically, it's known for a lot of poverty. Some people won't acknowledge that, but that's the way it is on the poverty map. And um, 
And basically, it's always had a bit of a on-off, good, bad reputation. And one of the things I noticed is that where are the writers? Where are the people that proudly say, you know, I'm a writer. I'm unashamedly from Seacroft. And I made a point to put that on my book so that people can go, wow, someone actually came from Seacroft. They can write and... Because that's another thing. Oh, people from poverty areas, they don't know how to write. And I'm like, nope, we do. And I wanted to put that on a book as kind of like a landmark to say, this is a Seacroft writer. There were others out there. And Seawark mm. Press, they, they did a, a similar thing. And they, they really uplifted the profile of a lot of really decent writers. And that's kind of what I wanted to see. I wanted to see local writers come forwards and not be ashamed of that, that they come from the council estate <laughs> mm. and as a young person in Seacroft I mean you're in your 20s now but you know, uh, you know as a child in Seacroft mm. growing up what was that like it's strange because um, as a child I wasn't always allowed to go out and, and you know mess around with the other teenagers as you'd expect for obvious reasons then bad kids don't go hanging out with them <laughs> but you know we got up to things we went sledding on a traffic cone which was interesting you know, we stole for sale signs to make sleds, that kind of stuff. And um, it's never really had much going on. It's, it, the parks were always kind of falling apart, um, which is kind of why I really appreciate what LS14 Trust are doing now, because we deserve these, you know, upgraded parks, these facilities that kids have a right to own. And, um, you know, there wasn't much to do, so you made your own fun, as they say. Absolutely. I'm thinking that you're not really very far away from Roundtape Park mm. here. We are not far away. Yeah, and it, even that, you know, we think two miles down the road is short distance to other people, but to a kid that may as well be 20 miles. And, um, you know, have you got the permission to go that, ex you know, over the, over the distance? Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And the difference, say, in the kind of attitudes to the to the park mm. um, from maybe from local people I mean I know people value the parks around here but it, at Round Tay I think volunteers raised about 150,000 mm. quid to 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 renovate the play park for yeah. the children and I, I've seen um, so many you know community centres um, youth clubs open and close you know having 100 people in one night then they were lucky to get any people showing up because they said to them you can't use skateboards you can't use rollerblades you can't use balls and they wonder why the kids went away mm. and um, it, it's just a shame that's what happens sometimes James what about your education uh, you know uh, did that that wasn't conventional is that right to say no um, for me I as you'd expect as an autistic person I went through a lot of bullying a lot of misdiagnoses a lot of missed opportunities to get support that would have made all the difference so um, basically I ended up being homeschooled um, unfortunately what happens is you're not always told that there's specific grants for you as a home, you know, as a home teacher a parent to get in order to afford these expensive books like GCSEs and all that goes along with it um, but, you know, sometimes it's just a case of, oh, that, 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 you know, disabled kid and they leave you alone. And that's kind of what happened with me. They left mm. me to my own devices and I, I learned through experience. Mm. As in lived uh, experience. Lived experience, yeah. Whether it's um, tutorials on YouTube or just, you know, everyday conversations and writing exercises that I think made the most contribution to my writing skills.
So yeah, tell tell us about your 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 relationship with words and with language because mm -hmm. obviously you write poetry. You've you've got three or four yeah. volumes of poetry. You've uh, you know you've taken part in numerous activities here. Mm -hmm. You've uh, you know you're very articulate. You've, you read. So where did all that start for you? Subconsciously, it's probably down to communication skills. I was a drastically different person when I was a teenager. I, I struggled with so many sentences and complex words, and if not for writing, I don't think I would have had those abilities to express myself the way I can now. And um, one thing that I, I didn't even know existed until like a year ago was um, this condition called alexithymia which is kind of comorbid with um, autism and it's basically the inability to um, quantify emotions in words basically sometimes and I always wondered why my poetry was so drastically different because like, if, if, if somebody sat me down and, and told me to tell me what you feel <laughs> and then I'd, I'd for some reason be running around the subject for 15 minutes being unable to find the words and I, now I know why um, and yeah, it, that's probably why I like I express myself better in poetry. I can find the words and work on them. <laughs> the script. Absolutely, and uh, I mean, I, th I think you're very, uh, as I say, very articulate about your feelings, your emotions, your experiences. You, you, you've talked a lot about John Hegley, the poet, and mm -hmm. Nick Tokcek as big influences on you and encourages in terms of your own. Absolutely, writing. absolutely. Um, John Hegley. Um, he basically was the first poet that showed me, hey, poetry can be funny. <laughs> and I, I had this idea that, oh, poetry must be serious. Poetry must be emotional. There must be angst. Mm. But no, he's uh, the, uh, mm. there's so many poems he writes that are just incredibly funny. And um, mm. But at the same time, very articulate himself. And that's inspiring to see when you're a kid. Um, those kinds of role models is what I think we need to see in Seacroft because we have a lot of humour and we we certainly love to tell stories at least um, verbally but getting it down on the page is another thing um, as for Nick Totchek, um if not for his poetry book Dragons I don't think I ever would have discovered poetry um, found it in a charity shop for £1.25 what a bargain mm. <laughs> and ever since then um, you know the poem The Dragon Who, ate, who Came to School uh, The Dragon Who Ate Our School I've uh, been able to, unable to basically shake it off. My mum keeps thinking, oh, it's a face, he'll grow out of poetry. But no. Nope. <laughs> Once you've got it, I don't think you ever do, James. No. That's how, uh, Such is the way yeah. of this affliction. Break it, break it to your mum gently, but I think that's, the, that's how it is. Um, read us another poem from the, from the book, if you would. Okay. Um, so one day I was uh, approached by a 10 year old kid and. Um, he was basically selling drugs. And then I, I learned about this term, Joey, which is basically what you would call a, a very young um, drug dealer. <laughs> Joey. Ten years old, a bright-eyed kid, bouncing around, just playing games, fetching drugs for thieves. Doing wheelies on bikes, you were invincible. Doing speed, a few legal highs, you filter through worlds. High on energy, too much hype, full of buzz. You burn out in glory, but it's different now. Innocently, you started this journey, too often manipulated. 
you fall through nets of fall from grace. Ten years old, our little Joey. Mm. Yeah, and absolutely right on the button in terms of all the publicity recently about county lines and so mm. on. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale basically. Um, mm. It happens. Young kids, they they get into this stuff and it's hard to get out. Absolutely, and you must have seen that in terms mm. of. I was thinking, you know, you're a ten, you're a ten-year-old kid. Why, why are you trying to sell me drugs? You should be out skateboarding on your bike. <laughs> and it's just one of those harsh realities sometimes um, living on the estate. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's let's. Um, we're going to hear some more of your poetry later on. We're going to hear uh, also a little more uh, about your autism. I mean, you're very, you're very. I know you're very passionate about that cause. So first of all, let's let's hear some music. You, you, you've chosen a track, "Good People" by Jack Johnson. Why have you chosen that? I've chosen that because it it's one of those songs where they talk about you know being cynical of technology, being aware of of just how um, how things lack. Um, oh, this is one of those moments where I'm forgetting my words and can't get them out. Um, Basically, it's a song about materialism, mm -hmm. and and just the know uh, the fleeting nature of it, I guess. Okay, so we're going to hear "Good People" by Jack Johnson, chosen by the poet James Lewis Moran. <laughs> it gonna be cause people will tune in how many train wrecks do we need to see before we lose touch of and we thought this was low well it's bad getting worse oh, where'd all the good people go I've been changing channels I don't see them on the TV shows where'd all the good people go of what we saw They got this and that with a rattle attack test and one two man what you gonna do bad news missed you's got too much to lose give me some truth now whose side are we on whatever you say turn on the boob tube I'm in the mood to obey so lead me astray and by the way now where'd all the good I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV shows Where'd all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we sow Not important to me 
So that was uh, that was good people by Jack Johnson, uh, chosen. Well, I can say stolen, chosen <laughs> by James, it's now. James Lewis Moran. It's great to have you here. You in... saying I plagiarise music? Never. <laughs> no, you don't. Your your songs are all original. Um, but that was yeah, that was Jack Jack Johnson. We're sitting in um, Studio One of Chapel FM. This this I mean you you've been involved with this building for a while, James. Tell us about how you first got involved with Chapel FM. I think I got involved with it when they were doing some kind of workshop at um, what was known as Bishop Young Academy at the time, and I was like, oh cool, bless you can do music, you can learn to write songs. I wrote very bad raps <laughs> and uh yeah i, I just kind of spiraled from then on out just getting into it it's one of those things like when you try and remember the past and it's been like 10 years you're like what were the exact details again <laughs> all i know is um i got involved and i kind of been here ever since i think one of the earlier memories was me trying to attend the uh, musicophone and basically being sent home because i didn't have permission to stay so I think I'm the only person to properly get kicked out of Chapel FM. <laughs> I'm sure it was you were kicked out in your own uh, best interest because I remember you were one of the people who always tried to stay up for 24 hours mm-hmm. all the way through. The, the music of fun is not for the faint-hearted. I think I created a survival guide for it, actually. <laughs> Brilliant. So let's have another poem from the book before we go on to the next thing. OK. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I was writing this collection is that a lot of it is dystopian and, you know, just the, the hard realities. You know, some things are bad, but that's you just have to live with them um, and hope for a, a better day. And this is one of those kind of nihilistic cyberpunk dystopian poems. A generation of dust. Money, enslavement, stigma, worth. Food, bills, progress. Society shattered, youth denied. Disposable news, opinions, hate, expects anarchy. Surprise, values dust. They call money to live on a benefit. Don't call it this. It's a chain of enslavement forcing you to live within restricted means. It's a sigma that says this is all you're worth. Can you do two weeks of food shopping on £20, pay all your bills to, call it progress do you think that buying biscuits is a luxury society needs to wake up notice the shattered bus shelters our frustrations in knowing that our estates our youth our futures have been denied they forced us to think we're disposable goods expendable 
told us everything we see is fake news, said our votes, our opinions never really mattered. Is it any wonder, this emergence of hate? As you'd expect, society's order will collapse as protest, anarchy and terrorism rises. They will wonder how and where it all went wrong. It'll be no surprise to us, the generation that values nothing, a generation of dust. Well, yes, that that's strong stuff. And also, as you say, not hope, but uh, you know, you, in other in other ways, in other poems, you're you're much more hopeful than that. But yeah, maybe that what you've said in that poem does need mm. to be said. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's hard to hear. Yeah, uh, and that's another you know music genre that I I got into film genre cyberpunk. Mm. Just the uh, where have you got? Pardon me. Whereas you've got um, sci-fi, which is kind of the, the utopian. We have this magical technology, and there's no problems of it. Mm. Um, cyberpunk is the flip side to that. You know that utopia and dystopia go hand in hand. You can have all this wonderful technology, but at the same time, at what cost? And as a genre, I think it's it's becoming very relevant. Uh, I've tried to write a few songs with it, with its themes in in lyrics, and it's going well. That's another band concept, Voltage Villains. Sorry, Voltage Vampires. Everybody's got Voltage Vampires in their life, they just don't know what they are. Parasitic Energy Drain. Your kettle, your microwave, your fridge, your TV. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> so that's my band on Facebook, Voltage Vampires. Look out for that. <laughs> Is there a page for them? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like with my other one, um, Cycling Mafia. I've got the music, just need to learn how to record it. Well, maybe bring it here, yeah. um, James. Yeah, you've talked about about perhaps you, you know, writers not coming from Seacroft or artists mm-hmm. not identifying as coming from East Leeds. I mean, what what for you? I mean, it might sound like an obvious question, but for what what have been the real struggles for you in terms of establishing yourself in your own mind, in in your own sense of your own identity as a poet? Um. One of the historic experiences Chapel FM has experienced is the um, the glass door in the front of the building. Um, people would walk past and look in and go, whoa, this looks nice, we're not used to nice, mm. um, and walk away. And it's, it's kind of giving myself um, that permission, you know, you have a right to be here. And it's the same with, with most people, you know, growing up around Seacroft. They feel that they aren't worthy to have these nice things to go to venues like this poetry's for the posh people <laughs> and you know our poetry is in is in songs in lyrics and raps and you know we're just in um we have every right to experience culture as much as anyone else I think the glass door analogy is absolutely spot on. I've never heard you talk about that glass door syndrome, but it's 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 it makes me sad. But you know that is what we're here for to mm. try and you know to actually say this glass door is glass because it's transparent. Have a look inside; you can see good stuff happening here. Yeah. But I know that people do walk away. Yeah, tell us about your 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 diagnosis of autism. When did that happen, and 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 how useful was that for you? Mm. Sadly, um, it should have happened when I was in primary school. They even put me through the tests 
and they decided he is not artistic enough. Unfortunately, the um, if at the time it was called Asperger's syndrome diagnosis wasn't actually used until 1994, and uh, obviously most of these things take a decade to get into education. So by then it was too late. Uh, now it's known as autistic spectrum disorder for some obvious reasons. Um, I'll not go into Hans Asperger too much, <laughs> but yeah, um, it's a shame because it would have explained so much. The way I learn, the way they should teach me, the way that I interact with people, everything would have been um, much easier. And I could have had the support had I had the diagnosis, but even my mum, she had this stereotype of what an autistic person looks like, the rain man. And unfortunately, that archetype, that image, is kind of hard to unpick with a lot of people. Um, they think you look like this and nothing else when uh, disability is dynamic. It's different for most people. Mm. Um, and yeah, like I said, whether it's alexithymia, um, the way I write poetry, and it just would have helped so much. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question. Right? Well, I, I'm, I, you, no, you have done. I'm just, I'm just wondering... Um, how it happened. I know it happened late for you oh, and it could yeah, have right. happened oh, earlier, but yeah, how did yeah. you actually get to the point where you got that diagnosis? Okay, so um, I, I got diagnosed when I was 19, so late. But there are people who get diagnosed in their 30s, 40s, 60s, 70s. Hmm. And um, that that's kind of what happens. Uh, it, it, there's often a waiting list um, for these things, which is unfortunate because it can do, make all the difference for a lot of young people. Um, and 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 it made presumably, as you said, it made a huge difference because it identified mm. perhaps why. It's kind of like um, having a, a a video games manual for the way that your brain works, right. um, which is really helpful. <laughs> it's like ah, so that's why noises are so loud. <laughs> you know, uh, soundproof headphones, beanie hats to block out the light, and you know, mm. give yourself that breathing space from sensory input. All these little life hacks, um, but you you need the diagnosis in most cases. It's just a case of going to see a doctor and and not not taking no for an answer. Um, unfortunately, a lot of doctors do uh, turn down people that are very autistic, especially in America. All right, okay. Um, now you identify as a, an autistic poet, yeah, mm. and um, I mean that seems important to you to go back to your poetry and and i mean you've had three or four collections mm. now tell us about how you bring those out and the the rationale behind what you do and and and, and also you know it must take a great deal of, of self-confidence to to i mean and you talk about the sense mm. of not being good enough or not being that not poetry not being for you but you have taken some very bold steps in in publishing your own work tell us about that I'd say it's probably down to encouragement from other people. You know, it's it's not always easy to fight um, your own conditions, your own depression, which I have as well. Um, and having somebody to say, you know, you write good things, once again, giving you that permission to say, this is good. You have a right to share this. You have a right to be here. Th those kinds of encouragements can make all the difference. And um, obviously... Back then, even now, I have um, quite a few confidence issues. I'm trying to work at it, but, um, you know, it, 
it's dynamic. Sometimes you have more confidence than others. And I think that's the way it's been with my writing. Um, Self-publishing is one of those processes that I just kind of got into because I thought that gives me more control over it. It's, you know, print per copy, which is kind of more ethical in terms of paper waste. Mm. <laughs> I don't see many writers talking about that. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I've got 3,000 copies of this book in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, and I just uh, the idea of being able to upload your own ebooks is incredibly easy. Um, same as making a paperback on Amazon these days. And you think, oh, I need to go through this person, this person, this person, publisher. And obviously, a lot of people see the value in that. But I, I like the do-it-yourself aspect. Mm. Absolutely. Does that tie in with the 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 rejection stuff for you? The dysphoria, rejection dysphoria. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, definitely. There's um, there's you know less chance of, of of rejection when you've got full control over your content, and yeah. uh, I know yeah. a lot of people feel like that. You YouTube deleting people's videos and channels. Mm. <laughs> Don't get me started on the amount of content creators who's who've had their entire catalog ripped off the internet because of a robot, an algorithm, mm. and it's a shame that happens. Yeah, and and although you say that you you know you obviously there's the rejection. Um, issue for you you are you are really keen to get feedback on your poems and you, you you ask I mean which is more than s- some poets do <laughs> uh, they don't want to yeah. face some of their shortcomings or they don't want to go over stuff redraft yeah. you are you are very open to that and I think that's uh, that's great and then I think exactly. you also take on feedback that's given to you yeah and um, when it comes to poetry you know it's, it's good to get feedback from a diverse collection of people because you know you can give one idea to 10 people and they would all write poetry differently they would all see it in a different way and i think it's the same with feedback um is learning to accept it or get too offended <laughs> that's the hard part and uh knowing when to listen and not listen to criticism uh, with your content you're very good so what tell, tell us about um yeah future books ideas for new collections any themes emerging absolutely um the first one was more just me kind of dipping my toes in um to poetry into writing and i guess at the same time the collection dare i disturb the universe again (laughs) was actually uh subconsciously about recognizing i was artistic and I've, i've noticed that in hindsight to a lot of the writings that were in there um, you know, having all these little thoughts that most people wouldn't have. <laughs> a very um, neurodiverse mind. Second collection, uh, Unsent Love Letters, was more about me understanding relationships and romance. Um, trying to unpick my um, film romance concept <laughs> uh, of things, which, uh, you know, that that happens. <laughs> and And this one, it's me translating um, my poverty and politics and activism experiences into something constructive, um, which I think we need to do with a lot of our experiences. And what about the next one? The next one is called Natural Words, and it groups together the writings about nature, about homely, warm things, um, light, the way in which I, you know, we experience light, whether it's that synesthesia experience of amber lights being warm and comforting Mm. but light is actually a great theme anyway in terms Mm. of 
Yeah, it has. It's a theme that I've considered actually for writing oh, there. And still in ideas, I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you know me. I'll nick anything, but uh, especially ideas. But no, I think light is a great theme because mm. of the whole. You know, as you say, light as in terms of the light where we're sitting under now, but light as in terms of illumination, in terms of vision, in terms of you know hope. And this is what I mean by you give one person one idea and they come up with thousands of ideas. <laughs> Well, yeah, if it's a good if it's a good idea, it's a good is. topic. Good yeah, topic. It's a good topic. Good theme. Um, yeah. And then following on from that is uh, one of my uh, kind of the fifth book, the end of the collection, the theme, so to speak, uh, which is called Sea Words, and that's uh, about watery um, themes. You know, seasides, oceans, emotions, uh, darkness, and also uh mental health and and trying to you know that's it i'm coming to terms with it end of uh and proper diving in at the deep end uh because when it comes to unpicking things like depression and you know all your baggage it's not easy and it gets a bit heavy <laughs> absolutely what about the mechanics idea so that one is is after that and you've uh, got three in the pipeline i've Brilliant. got four actually <laughs> don't boast uh okay uh and, and yeah af after the um after the c words i was going to do a specially selected you know a somewhat compilation of the five books and then after that i wanted to do mechanism mm. which is a collection around mechanics and movement and machines because there's not a lot of poetry from the perspective of people that do mechanics. There's some collections like Spokes from Otley, um, and that talks about bicycle poetry. But I, I, you know, I want to once again experiment with it and, and see what writings come forwards. It's a great idea, and I think you're quite right. There's not enough poetry about machines mm. and about how machines work. And we're living in the digital age. There's machines everywhere. Exactly, and will be more, and uh, and there'll be more and more of them that resemble us. But you, you have a mechanical mind, as in terms of I don't mean a mechanical mind, but you have an insight into how machines work, and you have an interest. I'd love to, I'd love to particularly read that volume, but also uh, you know the other collections that you're planning as well. So, James, read us one more poem to finish off with. Let's try. Okay, so we have election day. 2019 or we have the assessment whichever you prefer let's have the assessment okay um unfortunately uh when it comes to things like benefits assessments they can be extremely dehumanizing um even the simple act of making eye contact is a no on their forms sometimes often and there is Oh, countless cases of this and I wanted to write about that experience the assessment burning composure paranoid regrets demand dramatics anxious words madman things yells artistic rags stink disabled pain sick mad do they want me burning buildings torturing cars Losing the composure I once had. Should I be paranoid and creepy? Become what they expect to be the monster they seek, proving my point without regrets. 
They will demand some dramatics to be foaming at the mouth, anxious, utterly manic with these words. Then call me fit for work. I guess they expected a madman. Someone who throws things, who yells at others passing by. They will claim you don't look autistic, as if they care. Maybe they want me to lose it, to talk to myself. They'll presume I'll be wearing rags to stink, of course. An interrogation will happen. Prove you're disabled, will be said. They demand frailty. To see your pain up close. Bonus points if you scare the other staff. Am I sick enough yet? Are we mad? Strong stuff, James. Thanks ever so much uh, for talking to us. And that's uh, Poverty and Politics. How can people get hold of this new book of yours? You can buy this on Amazon.co.uk as either a ebook or as a paperback. James and Lewis Moran, as spelt James with an I, J-A-I-M-E-S. Yep. Uh, and one of the things I've recently discovered is that apparently I have a profile as a writer on Goodreads. So uh, if you are doing any reviews, um, it would help to put them on there rather than Amazon, as Amazon is one of those strange companies that deletes your entire history of reviews just because it feels like it. Okay, good. Well, you've got that. I hope you go out and buy it. It's uh, it's uh, your third collection. We expect three more and or even four in the next uh, <laughs> year or so. But thanks ever so much, James. Lovely to have you back in Studio One at Chapel FM here in Seacroft, uh, homeland of James Lewis Moran, the poet. So thanks very much. And you're going to oh, you've got a track that ah. you've nominated. So let's let's hear let's hear about this track, "Waiting for the World to Change." This one is by John Mayer, and I, I think it it came well. I came across it when. I was struggling with, with, you know, activism, like, why do I keep bothering? And I think most people feel like that. And this is one of those songs where it, one of the final verses talks about um, it being inevitable that change will come.
Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. How can we leave a positive legacy when we live in such a short-sighted world? My name is Eleanor Snare. I'm an educator, coach and writer, and that's the question I'll be responding to in this segment. Find out more about me and my work by visiting www.eleanorsnare.com forward slash love the words. So today I'd like to talk to you a little bit about an experience I've had recently where I stopped using social media in such an active way. And I've done this, I did this for about, I guess, nine months or so. Um, And during that time, I continued to engage with social media, but in very limited form. So I would sort of check and see what various interesting people were doing on LinkedIn or on Instagram. But I wasn't contributing to social media in the same way that I had done before, Um, not by any stretch of the imagination. And there was lots of reasons for me taking this break. Um, But really what I was doing was switching off a part of the daily life where I was really concerned with sharing my ideas and my opinions with other people. We've evolved with two ears, one mouth, and maybe 10 or 15 other ways of listening to people. But we're unconscious of most of these. So I can't describe to you how or why my sister and I know when we're going to call each other and we call each other at the exact same moment. I can't describe to you what the smell of my best friend is or how my partner knows when I'm worried as soon as I step into the room. Really, we're beings born to listen. But we've invented modern communication tools and techniques which prioritise talking over listening, using our one mouth over our two ears and multitude of sensory abilities. When I had ejected myself from social media, this is what I was really conscious of. I couldn't and I didn't want to keep sharing my opinions with everyone. I was bored, actually, of their opinions, too. My two ears felt desensitised to any real information that might be trying to get through. And when I say real information, I mean all that I believe we're chasing when we visit social media for inspiration. We're looking for a spark of insight, a flash of genius, a bolt from the blue, or a struck match of an inkling of a germ of an idea. But real information is in the line, the phrase, the note, the way the river runs just so over those pebbles that insist that we stop, that we pause and we rearrange our experience in the world around this new information. I come from a very private family and one which held its emotions very close to its chest and which, in which I often felt um, sensitive, brash, 
too open, too expressive. And I believe that for many, many years, I had used social media as an outlet for this because it was a place where my perceived oversharing and overexpressiveness was actually received and celebrated. This sort of behavior was normal rather than unusual or even antagonistic as it was in my birth family. Perhaps it's as I've got older, as I've conducted more deep development on and compassion for myself, or perhaps it was simply because I was bored of feeling that way, but I don't need that process in my life anymore. When I was using social media to tackle this feeling of overexpression, of, of oversharing, I was treating symptoms, not the cause. I wanted to feel accepted in my style of communication and emotional expression, so I found virtual places to do that. But treating the cause looks very different. It means accepting that for a long time, I didn't feel free to express my true self. It means accepting, celebrating and enjoying my abundant emotional expressiveness by myself and for myself without the affirmation of other people. Without me accepting who I am and how I like to communicate, the problem was never really solved, no matter what tool I chose to use to communicate. The problem was only masked and with this surfaced the resulting frustrations that I would experience daily with and in my social interactions. The result of this short hiatus, this six or nine month path, is that first of all, I'm able to reflect and see what was really happening when I was using or rather abusing social media. It was almost a, a surrogate self-acceptance of my expressive character. Secondly, the process has helped me realize that I'm no longer in need of a surrogate. And third, real information, when I've given it time and space to do so, has come through. Slow at first, but swifter and richer as time has passed. The author Terry Pratchett described new ideas as sparkling hail flying through the universe, ready to be caught by minds that are open and fertile enough to receive them. In the pause, in the time away from noisy social media chatter, I've been cultivating an open and fertile mind, ready to catch one or even more of those glittering spheres. I've been tilling the land to clear the lines of communication so that the things whose time has come can speak to me and I will hear them. The dilemma now, of course, is about how, when or if to share these fascinating visions with others can art truly be art until it's shared? Can an idea still have impact if it lives in just one mind? But I'll leave you with a story to illustrate my point. 
There was once an old fisherman who lived down on the coast of Cornwall. After his wife passed away, the fisherman began painting at the grand old age of 70. Every day after his work was done, he would paint. He painted on pieces of disused boat timber, on boxes or ancient tobacco tins, anything he could find he used as a painting surface. He painted the sea, the sky, the rolling boats and the world outside his Cornish home. He painted in a very simple way, almost crude, with little or no perspective, with flat shapes and shading, with brilliant colours in scenes which fitted into the shapes of whatever bit of wood or card or tin that he was working on at the time. One day, as he sat painting outside his home, an artist walking along the beach saw the fisherman painting and asked to see his work. This artist was struck by the vibrancy and the simplicity of the piece. And when the fisherman showed him plenty of other pieces, each one in turn captured the imagination of this artist. He was in fact blown away by the naive but meaningful style in which this old fisherman painted. Now that artist was Ben Nicholson, husband of Barbara Hepworth, co-founder of the St Ives Artist Commune, along with Bernard Leach and Christopher Wood. For most of his life, the fisherman had lived with two ears open, absorbing the sea, the sky and the earth around him, taking up painting to have a conversation with the world in place of his wife. He became a significant influence on that St Ives group with Bernard Leach, Christopher Wood, Ben Nicholson. That group who were so continually trying to capture by force the immediacy with which the fisherman painted so naturally. He was an idea whose time had come. And his name was Alfred Wallace. Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words from ELFM. Number, uh...